Hey folks, Ned here. Over the past 25 years, I've talked with thousands of parents of high school students, parents who care deeply about their kids' education and how they deal with stress and the pressure to succeed. But these parents need to work with a team they trust won't just pile on more pressure to achieve better grades and scores. This is why I started Prep Matters in 1997, to create a different kind of experience for test preparation, tutoring, and college admissions planning. This podcast and my books reflect our company's philosophy and approach to helping students. If you have a high school student and would like to talk about putting in place a plan, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at prepmatters.com or call 301-951-0350. That's 301-951-0350. Thanks, and now back to our show. It's really hard to see a kid who can't self-regulate but wants friends. And so they want to figure out what are the things that I can do so I can get friends. And it's really about how do you regulate yourself and be in relationship with somebody else and not always be in charge and not always be the one who is going first. There's a lot to social interaction, but a lot of it is how are you dealing with your own self and how are you able to pause and stop and think and think about the other person, perspective. There's so much that goes Mm. into it. Welcome to the Self-Driven Child Podcast. I'm your host, Ned Johnson, and co-author with Dr. William Stickstrude of the books, The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives. And what do you say? how to talk with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and a happy home. One of our jobs as parents is to help raise our children to be able to run their own lives with all its challenges, headaches, and heartaches, and growing pains. We cannot protect our kids from adversity, nor should we want to. Without struggle, there isn't the growth that they need or the confidence that they gain of knowing that they can handle hard stuff that comes from, well, handling hard stuff. But children, like all people, need skills to help them cope when things are hard and when they have hard feelings. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Janine Halloran, a licensed mental health counselor, author of incredible books on coping skills for kids and teens. I actually gave away my kid's book already. It was that good. A speaker and entrepreneur and a mom. I had the pleasure of co-presenting with Janine about helping families cope with the holidays. So now that that's behind us, we're delighted to be joining you to have this conversation. You may be thinking, now you bring her to us? Well, sorry, we're doing the best that we can. But Janine, Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. So to, so to start things off, can you explain to us what coping means from a clinical standpoint? So really, when I talk about coping, I'm talking about ways that you can deal with big, stressful, overwhelming emotions, challenging situations, big feelings, mm-hmm. tough times that are going on in your house or going on in the world. So I think about coping in terms of like healthy versus unhealthy. So you can use unhealthy coping skills. The thing I always use, an example I always use is like, if your brother is building up Legos and you knock them down because you get mad at him, that's unhealthy. Like it's not a great choice to like go after your brother's Legos or hurt somebody else's stuff or hurt yourself or hurt property, right? But it's really about trying to find those healthy strategies, keeping it safe, healthy, effective, that are going to be working for helping you deal with the things that come your way, whatever it is, your feelings, your thoughts, your challenging situations. Makes me think of Jess Leahy's book, The Addiction Inoculation. Oh, yes. It's wonderful. And it makes me, I mean, obviously, we're here talking about kids and teens, but she makes the great point that 
if adults, and it applies to teens and, and kids, unfortunately, as well, that if we don't have healthy ways to deal with stress, we'll invariably turn to whatever method works, including ones that are unhealthy. And so parents who come who have had a heck of a day, and all, the only tool they have to is to throw down a couple of stiff drinks or, or, or more. We like to do better than that if we can. So coping skills are incredibly important is a tool and really a lifelong tool. And, and I know that this is the work that you do with helping families. Can you just talk a little bit more? I mean, it may seem obvious, but why are having these skills so important beyond you know, what I just talked about of turning to drinks rather than deep breathing? What you say is really key, though, for what I think about when it comes to coping skills, because really what it comes down to is we want to be able to work and live and play in the world in a way that does not impact other people negatively, right? So in mm-hmm. order for us mm-hmm. to do that, we've got to deal with our own emotions. Part of why I actually started Coping Skills for Kids is I started talking about play and social skills. And part of social skills is being able to cope with your own emotions in a safe and healthy way so that you can interact. I've seen it where kids are not able to self-regulate and other kids don't want to hang out with them because they're they're unsure. They're unclear as to what their behavior is going to be. So it makes them nervous. So I wanted kids to figure out, okay, if I want to be in relationship with other people, I have to first be in relationship with myself and understand me mm. and understand how I'm interacting and how I'm dealing with my emotions and then make that next step of interacting with other people. It's really hard to see a kid who can't self-regulate but wants friends. And so they want to figure out what are the things that I can do so I can get friends. And it's really about how do you regulate yourself and be in relationship with somebody else and not always be in charge and not always be the one who is going first. There's a lot to social interaction, but a lot of it is how are you dealing with your own self and how are you able to pause and stop and think and think about the other person perspective. There's so much that goes Mm. into it. So for instance, you know, um, a group of kids get together and it's not clear what the hierarchy is, kind of what the rules of the games are. You know, Jeanine wants to play and Ned starts being bossy or being unfair. And you want to hang out and play with me, but you don't like the way that I'm running the show. And can you keep your own, like, I want to punch that kid, you know, under wraps enough to then be effective to, well, change the dynamic, right? Get, get, you know, get me to change the rules, get me to play more fairly, as opposed to just kind of blowing up in that moment and storming off. And then no one's really getting what they want. No. And I've been reading some studies around play. I love talking about play because mm-hmm. it is so powerful. I read a lot of studies around play, but there's some really interesting research around play and self-regulation in preschoolers. So mm. when you have to play and you want to play kitchen, you want to play house, you want to play veterinarian clinic, right? You have to be able to regulate yourself in order to continue the play. Because like you said, when somebody's like, you're being too bossy, you're not playing what I want to play and you leave, the play is done. And then it's not fun anymore. If you want to keep the play going, you have to self-regulate. And that's how they learn it. That's why I think play is so important as a skill for kids of all ages and adults, but especially for younger kids, for preschoolers to start learning that interactive, that open-ended play, that dramatic play, all of that sort of helps them build their self-regulation skills, which is huge for friendships. Mm. So let me jump in with with a thought here. I was in a conversation with, I think this was Katie Hurley made the point. Well, two things. One is, as you know, and Peter Gray, who's one of the you know, world's foremost authorities on play, makes this point that play by its nature 
is not adult supervised. Where I was going with this, where Katie was going with this, is that it is easy for parents to watch kids bicker and squabble. And she would say, oh my gosh, they spend half of their time arguing before they even get down to playing. And the point that she made is that all of that arguing, that is the important stuff. So as you're saying, you know, the self-regulation and, and Ned, that's not cool. I don't like that, blah, 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 blah. As opposed to a kid who gets upset and runs off and mom and drags a parent into it to regulate the whole situation and make everyone play nice. The challenge then is that the kid has no skills within herself to affect change, to self-regulate, to, to make the dynamic work well. Do, do I have that about right? Yes, absolutely. And as a parent, I know that it is hard. I've had preschoolers, I've had toddlers, and I've watched them play. And I, it's really, really hard to sit there because you know that you can fix it in just a second, right? But is that really helping big picture long term? Mm. It will help you in the moment because it will be less stressful for you as the parent or you as the caregiver. And there is a point, like if they're being unsafe, if people are hit, using hitting hands, like all those mm -hmm. things where you need to like be able to learn how to, that's when you need to step in. But if they're just trying to figure it out amongst themselves, let them do it. And I would say that was always one of the fun things about being an elementary school counselor. Um, mm -hmm. like the kids would come in, they'd have a conflict and I'd ask, well, how do you want to solve it? And I could solve it for them. I could tell them how to fix the problem, right? But it was always interesting to see how they determined that they were going to do stuff. And because they had determined it themselves, they were much more likely to actually follow through and do it. And it wouldn't be things that I would think of. Like one girl, they were arguing about who was going to play with who and they like made a rotation. I was like, are you serious? But that's what works for them. And they figured it out. And I was like, okay, I wouldn't have done it that way, but all right, here we go. <laughs> I, I love that. Let me just put a point on that because I think it's such a great insight. So the question that you would ask of this child is, how would you like to solve this? How would you like to resolve this? Which is so good. I mean, as you know, in, in the self-driven child, we talk about the idea of parent as a consultant. And rather than jumping as the manager, the police or the playground monitor, whatever, trying to coach kids and consult with them, asking good questions so that in a perfect world, they come up with their own solutions to the problem. So that in terms of a coping skill, the sense that I can solve problems on my own, maybe with some help, but solve problems on my own is just so incredibly powerful because one would imagine that if a child doesn't feel like she can affect change on the playground, and she can't get her needs met or whatever. We'll just avoid going out on the playground and just want to cling by the teacher the whole time and never, which doesn't <laughs> get you very far in terms of making friends and being part of the dynamic you want to be part of. Yep. And then it doesn't also fix the issue in the friendship. So then maybe a friendship ends. That could have been a nice friendship, a good friendship for you, because it just sort of blows up in your face if you don't try and problem solve it. And that's not what we want. The other reason why I think about coping skills and social skills all the time is I think about interacting with people that you don't necessarily get along with. How hmm. do you do that in a way that is effective? And to get your point across, but understand that you're not going to agree on everything and to be able to manage your own emotions when things get heated, <laughs> which is all, like, it's really tough. Well, it's interesting. I'm trying to remember, there was an article that just showed up, I think in the Washington Post, about teenagers being incredibly, I'm going to make a note, we'll put this in the show notes, of, being, of teens being conflict avoidant. And there are lots of reasons for them. And obviously, you know, 
the overwhelmation of uh that's not really a word but my friend coined it <laughs> <laughs> i like it the overwhelmation right of covid and when we feel what we are experiencing is beyond our ability to handle it we end up moving towards the avoidant end of things and so if i don't feel that i have effective tools to cope with conflict i will avoid conflict because you just made a point here that it's important for children to learn how to deal with people they don't necessarily like and of course as well it's also incredibly important for them to be able to learn to deal with the conflict of people who they do like right so i remember when my daughter was I don't know, probably middle school she would be upset about this or that thing with, with this or that friend and we'd be trying to coach her but and she didn't want to tell her friend hey janine i really don't like it when you do such and such that hurts my feelings because she was so worried that if she did that that janine would no longer be her friend and of course the only way <laughs> that she can realize that it's okay to do that is to take the risk of doing that Giddy, I don't like when you do this either. Okay, well, can we agree that, you know, you're back to, well, we'll do our rotation <laughs> and, and figure that out because you and I probably both see this as well of adults who don't really express to their partners or their spouses or their friends or in-laws, hey, it really upsets me when, and it may not necessarily change that behavior, but to bottle up all of those feelings and, and to never articulate them is a very poor path for uh, any of us to be on, Right. Absolutely. You've got to get it out. I always say that to my teenagers, get it out, write it out, do whatever you can to get those emotions out of you. You may not get the response that you're anticipating or you would like, but it's really not about the other person. It's about you processing it. It's about mm. you being able to work through it. You can't fix your boss. You can't fix like <laughs> what are you in control of and what are you not in control of? And you can control how you react, how you respond, what you're thinking, how you can manage your own emotions versus trying to make it so that your boss isn't a jerk. Like I can't, <laughs> like I just, sometimes it, it happens. Right. You talk about in your book of what can I control? What can I not control? Right. I guess I will a little bit of the, uh, the serenity prayer, right? Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> So, so in your books on coping skills, you kind of lay out these major categories of coping skills because people may have their own ideas of what this means, but I'd love for you just to, this is not a replacement for the book. We're not going to do a full book review on this, but, but kind of lay out for us the major categories of coping skills. Sure. So I will say that I sort of came to this naturally as I was working with kids. So, you know, you get out of graduate school and like shiny new counselor, like super pumped to start working with kids, right? I would come up with like this whole like list of things. And I remember this one little tween, she had like a little attitude and I liked that. He was like, Janine, this list is too long. I can't figure it out. And I was like, that's fair. That's really fair. Like, how do you figure out what's going to work? And so right then in the room, we sort of started to divide it up. And over time, I've come up with these categories. So there's relaxation. And so those are the things I think we typically think about, like deep breathing, progressive muscle relaxation when you're squeezing and releasing your muscles, grounding techniques to help you stay focused on the present moment, mindfulness, those sorts of things, right? That's all what I put in the category of relaxation. There's also the category of distraction. This is not avoiding or denying or suppressing emotions. It's more about giving your brain a break getting some time to play because play is a natural stress reliever, which I love. I, that's mm -hmm. why I read so much about play. I think it's really powerful in terms of how we can learn, but also how we can de-stress. And then there's also movement. So there's 
a lot of kids who just need to move. When you have anger in your body, it floods your body. And to try and get that out of you in a way that feels safe and healthy to other people and yourself, that's really helpful to like get that movement in. And then there's also, I've sort of started separating out sensory because I'm noticing a lot more kids coming in with sensory integration issues, just sensory challenges. And, and I have a sensory kid myself. I see that I under, and I've seen sensory kids. And so having kids focus on their senses to help them relax and calm down is actually really helpful for those kids who really respond well to it. And then there's processing and processing is all about that. It's very cerebral. We're talking about identifying our feelings, labeling where we feel things in our body, making a plan for the next time. Where's my locus of control? What can I control? What can't I control? What can I influence? So that's what I try to do to make it a little bit easier for Mm -hmm. kids to try and Mm -hmm. like figure out what it is that's going to work for them and what is what they're going to respond to and what's going to be most helpful for them. So like the kids that I see that are movers and shakers, we're going to do a lot of movement stuff together. We're going to try some sensory stuff. I typically do processing with all of my kids because it's really important. Like you mm-hmm. got to le- learn to label mm-hmm. your emotions. You got mm-hmm. to do that. Name it to tame it, right? It's exactly. Yep. Yep, exactly. So that's how I've divided it up in the books and the card decks as well. I love that. When I, when I think about the distraction versus relaxation, I've I actually was pre-COVID, Bill Stuckson, my writing partner, started asking kids about, these are all high school juniors, what do you do to relax? What do you do to blow yeah. off stress? And it was interesting because some of them would say things like, you know, listen to music or I go for a run. But for the vast, vast majority of them was, it was either that I would just get this work done so I would get past it or I'd go on my phone. And so you frame this up nicely because I've been trying to work this out of my head. And my current conception about this is that there's a difference between relief and release of stress. And what I mean by relief of kind of stopping the inflows of stress as opposed to increasing the outflows of stress. So the ways, you know, if I'm completely overwhelmed to distract myself with mindfulness meditation, whatever, to just bring myself back to the sensor so I stop the rumination or the fortune telling, you know, catastrophizing, blah, blah, blah. But to separate that from what are things that actually, you know, deep breathing, what are things that actually bring stress out of your nervous system? I think that a coaching for kids has got to be, you know, I, I assume for, you can start this even with, with kids at a very young age. And obviously, we as adults are still trying to work these things out ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love talking about helping kids figure out what are those things that can actually rejuvenate them? What are the things that can allow them to relax, but then also fill their cup back up? Mm -hmm. Because it's Mm -hmm. very exhausting to be in high school. It's very exhausting to be in middle school and to be, it's just being a student is hard. And I think sometimes adults forget that. Like your brain is working all day long. You are sitting a lot. You are not moving a lot. They need that time to like, just sort of chill out and figure, but what are those things that they do? And I always ask my clients, no matter what age they are, towards the end of a session, I tend to ask them, like, what are you going to do for fun? Like, where's your play? What's your play going to be? And like, I'm talking like college kids. I'm talking Mm -hmm. my my high schoolers. Mm -hmm. Like, it's easy to talk with my little ones about it. They're like, I'm going to do this. (laughs) But my my teenagers sometimes look at me like, what? I'm like, no, no, no. You need to play. So what is your way of like, are you going to listen to some playlists and sing at the top of your lungs while you drive in your car? Like, you need to figure something out because you need to let it out. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. Sonia Luthien, she and Robert Sapolsky were two of the kind of rock star grad students of, of Bruce McEwen. 
you know, came up with allostatic load. And, and she, she's at the Center for Studies of Human Stress in Montreal. And she talks about physiologically the four methods of emergency stress relief are laughing, singing, deep breathing, and vigorous exercise, which you basically put your finger on all of those in the books. I'd love to talk for a moment about movement. Kind of two thoughts jumped in my head. One is I still have this keen memory of my parents' divorce in a remarkably dramatic way. It was it would have made for a lovely movie, but perhaps more a horror movie when I was, you know, in, in middle school. And I can remember sitting there in the therapist's office with probably my mom and my twin brother and being asked some hard question that brought up hard feelings and kind of where was I thinking? And the therapist, to her credit, had all these kind of fidget toy things, you know, sitting yeah. there in the middle of the table. And so I pick one up and I'm fussing with this and I'm trying to, you know, get the courage and, and clarity of my thoughts to share them. And I assume it was my mom and not the therapist who said, you know, put that down and kind of look at me and pay attention. And, I, and I'm sort of like, well, you can either get my thoughts or you can get my eye contact, but you're not going to get both. And years ago, there, there was a study I read. It was an article. It was about boys as the weaker sex in Time Magazine 15 years ago. And it was the head of a school, an all-boys school. Maybe it was the vice principal or something. And so when boys would get in trouble and get sent to his office, like they'd done something they shouldn't have been doing. And what he said, I always do, he said, let's go for a walk. And he said, go up. And we walk all the way around the periphery of the school. It's about a you know, quarter of my half mile, whatever it was. And as we start around the second time, he'd say, so what's going on? And it just seems to me that if you want to get to sort of unlock people's lips, you want to get their feet moving as well. And I don't know if that's true for everyone, but what's your experience been with that? Oh my gosh. That principal, that vice principal, I would actually have kids do that. They would come into my office and I sometimes we'd go for the Halloran walk. So we would go. <laughs> I can borrow that. Thank you for that. <laughs> like they were too escalated to talk. We would walk together. If they had come to my office and they were calming down, but I knew they needed to go back to class, but they weren't quite ready, I would give them a pass that said, it's the Halloran walk. You are walking down the hallway. You were taking a sip from that fountain. You were going to the next hallway and taking a sip from that fountain. You were going to the bathroom and you were splashing water in your face. And then you were going back to class because you're not, you're like, you and I have talked through it and you're ready sort of, but like yeah, not yeah. quite, like you need a little bit more. I love the idea of movement and I like small and big body movement. So that's what I talk about in the book. I'm all about fidgets. When I give presentations, I call out the people who are knitting, not in a bad way. I'm like, oh my gosh, first of all, tell me what you're knitting or crocheting. Second, you are allowed to do that because it's very hard to sit for a very long time. And I don't need eye contact, especially working with kids. I don't need it. I want to have the conversation. It's easier for kids to not make eye contact in order to say the hard things that they need to say. So I'm all about fidgets. And sometimes I feel really bad because their parent, if I'm at a client's house or you know, meeting with the client and the parent has like fidgets around and they're like, stop fidgeting. I'm like, oh no, he's fine. We're good. We're good. They're like, you don't need to worry about it. Like they'll be on the floor and they'll be like walking around and we're like, I'm still tracking the conversation. Because I'm good at that. Like you walk around the room. I'm still listening to what you are having to say. But if that's what's going to help you to get your emotions out, to get your feelings out in a way that feels less vulnerable to you, where you can yeah, actually yeah. tell me harder things. Yes. I actually went with a walk on a, on a walk with a client recently, like just right before Christmas. <laughs> he had too much energy. Yeah. Yeah. He did. 
He's got ADHD and it was right before Christmas break, right? So he had like sugar at school. He had had like all sorts of candy. He came in and he was like vibrating. And I was like, we We are going out. And his parents are like, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, we're taking a walk. Uh Like get your jacket on. Let's. And he's like, I don't need a jacket. I'm like, it's fine. Like he's a new England kid. He's going to be fine in his shorts and a t-shirt in like 30 degree weather. So we walked. And we walked back and then we sat and we talked for 20 minutes. It's like, it's what needs to happen sometimes for kids. Yeah. Um, and it is like such a New England thing. Like they just never, I'm like, are you kidding me right now? I'm freezing looking at you. And they're like, I'm fine. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, they're probably testing themselves a little bit, right? I mean, yeah. you know, I just learned literally three weeks ago, the word interoception which is our sense of you feel your tummy grumble, right? Am I hungry? Do I need water? Am I upset by what Ned just said? And so I assume that when you are doing coaching with little guys and kind of let's reflect on what we're feeling physically and what we're feeling emotionally and connecting those two things. Is that, do I have that close to right? Yeah, absolutely. I always talk about where you feel things in your body and how it feels. Where do you feel your anger? Are you like rumbly? Are you hot? Are you cold? You know, like helping them understand that and understanding what helps you when you're in that. Does it help you to do some crab walking? Does it help you to do some jumping jacks? Does it help you to squeeze yourself tight? My best friend is an occupational therapist. So we used mm. to actually run groups together. So I always rely on her for like the extra senses because that's her expertise. That's her area of right. expertise. But it was interesting to run groups with her because I would see it from the therapist perspective and she would see it from the OT's perspective, but we'd be doing the same thing. And we'd be talking like very similar language, but it's it really is about helping kids understand how their body is and how they can learn, okay, I'm running too high now. I got to get myself back in a more like neutral position or I have too low energy. I got to get myself a little bit higher. So I'm ready to learn. So it's it's very interesting kind of stuff. I always try and especially with kids on with sensory, I always say like, check with your OT people check with an OT, check with the OT at school, check with an OT in private practice. Like if you are having a kid with sensory challenges, that can be very, very helpful. Very, very helpful to have their perspective and expertise on what's going to be most beneficial, especially in schools where they talk a lot about sensory diets, which I think are great, like little breaks throughout the day where they can get like a body movement, but Mm -hmm. it depends on that kid. You know, every kid is different. Sometimes those body breaks, depending on what you're doing, could escalate a kid as opposed to getting them into a place where they're going to be learning. So that's when you rely on your OT to help you figure out, okay, what is the thing that's going to be most helpful for this child? I can imagine parents are listening and say, but wait a second, the idea that I can't understand that they don't connect, you know, their feelings to what they're feeling, you know, I mean, like, what's that all about? And we need a sensory integration, like what? My daughter, who is 18, is ASD, and basically she could feel the physiological symptom, but she couldn't really connect it. I remember years ago, her therapist, she said, she's like this brilliant brain that's walking atop a body with no connection to it, (laughs) you know? And the wonderful thing about this is with the kind of work that you do, with working with a really good OT, that these are learnable, developable skills, right? Just like anything is a developable skill. I mean, interpersonal skills or reading skills. 
And so I can imagine parents, they perceive the world one way and trying to make sense of how their kid doesn't see it, doesn't get it. Do you see that a lot where parents are sort of like intuitively social or intuitively intrapersonally aware and they have a kid who isn't there yet? Yep, absolutely. Even something as simple as like introversion versus extroversion, or if you have a highly sensitive kid and you are not a highly sensitive person yourself, uh, or you are highly sensitive and you don't have a highly sensitive kid, you parent differently. And it's, you know, I think sometimes as parents, we have this idea of like the child that we wanted versus the child that we actually have. And so you have to actually respect and honor the little person that you have and to recognize like what works for them and what doesn't work for them. Like my son, oh my gosh, he loves soccer right now. I'd still, I've been watching soccer games for years. I have no idea what's happening. None, (laughs) none. Until Unless they get a goal. I'm like, I don't even, and even then I'm sort of like, which side are you on? I like, I just like, my brain doesn't work that way, but he loves it. He loves it. And that, you know, I respect that. And I honor that. So here we are signed up for soccer again, getting extra soccer stuff in. Well, that, that point about individual differences, I think is incredibly important. As you said, we parent the kid that we have. I'm sort of smiling because when, when you and I first met, we're giving a talk right before the holidays. I think we fell into a little bit of a rabbit hole about introversion versus extroversion. And you fake extroversion really well, but you talked about how all you would really like to do for Christmas is sit around and read books and not talk to anyone. And I am wildly at the other end of of things. And so it is an interesting thing. I mean, you can be a parent who who has a kid who's shy when you're not, who's into sports when you're not, who, who anything when you're not, right? And so our job as parents is to learn to understand our kids, but also to help them understand themselves. And so one of the things that I like about your book, first of all, there are like a gazillion tools in here. Please, I don't want anyone to come away thinking we have to implement all of these tools. That would be crazy making. But I love the idea that there are so many tools. And then you just find the ones that work for you and for your kid. But my last question is, what's your advice if a parent has a kid who they see really isn't coping that well in whatever situation, it's school, it's social, it's friends, it's you know, self-regulate, whatever. And they, they keep trying to make suggestions of things that they think will work for their kid. And the kid, no, no, and they just sort of bat it away like you don't understand or that won't work or you know, whatever, apart from getting your help or someone like you who's, who's in their neighborhood. What's your advice for parents of how to get kids to be open to the, the, some of these coping skills if they feel like their kid is currently resistant? So the first thing I would say is remember that this is a marathon and not a sprint when it comes to helping your children. You actually know where they live. So like there's always going to be more teachable moments, more opportunities for you to try and teach them something. The second thing I always say to parents is try and keep it as chill as possible, especially with teenagers. They feel that anxiety from you when you're like, you need to learn coping skills, right? They feel that they and automatically they're going to dig in because they're teenagers. Mm. So the way that I try and do it is I don't actually even say coping skills. I say a skill and then I actually try it with them. So I will say like, I want to, you know, I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed. I want to go for a walk. Do you want to go on a walk with me? And then we go on a walk sometimes. Let's listen to some music. You know, you're having a hard time going to sleep. I'll be here with you. What playlist are you going to listen to? Do you want to listen to a book? Do you want to do a little bit of drawing? Do you want to, and I try and do things with them. So like, 
you want to take a break. You're like feeling overwhelmed with school and you just are tired and you just want to chill out and relax. Well, let's maybe do puzzles or let's play a game together. or Let's play a video game together. So I always try and make it about the connection and mm. then using myself as the model, like saying and saying out loud, speaking out loud, I'm a little bit mad. And so I am going to go upstairs and take a shower or take some deep breaths or whatever I need to yep. do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I use myself as the model now. And that requires me as the adult to like actually be in control, which is hard to do all the yeah, time, 100%. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is give yourself grace because you are not going to be perfect and neither are they. And it's not going to come perfectly the first, like you're not going to have a conversation about like doing mindfulness and then they're suddenly going to be doing mindfulness like 30 minutes a day. It's not happening. It's not happening. (laughs) (laughs) And and be okay with that. Be okay with like, start with five minutes. That's actually a good amount of time to like start. Yeah, 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 yeah. Start tiny. If you start something small with them and then build on it, just remember it's a marathon. You're not, this is not something that you're going to fix overnight. If they've been struggling with this for 14 years, it's going to take a little bit of time rather than just like two conversations where we're talking about coping skills. It takes a lifetime. Mm. It's okay. It's all right. Give yourself grace. That's the last thing I would say. Give yourself grace and give them grace. It's okay. You're not going to be perfect. No human is. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Well, apart from buying your wonderful books available everywhere, Coping Skills for Teens Workbook, Coping Skills for Kids Workbook, if folks want to find you, where's the best way for them to go? And we'll, of course, put this in the show notes as well. CopingSkillsForKids.com. Woohoo! That, <laughs> that does it. Well, Janine Halloran, it has been a pleasure chatting with you about this. I love the point where, where you started about kind of problems short-term or problems long-term, and you ended it there as well, that this is a marathon. In a perfect world, we are with our kids, you know, helping them, giving them, sharing wisdom with them, you know, talking with them, not to them forever, because you start this process with kids, but ultimately to be successful in sharing these tools with anyone, you have to have the closeness, you have to have the relationship that they're open to this. It's been a great conversation. I'm really grateful for your sharing all your wisdom with us and people who are trying to help their kids and ourselves, you know, cope through life. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Thanks. Hey folks, Ned here. Over the past 25 years, I've talked with thousands of parents of high school students, parents who care deeply about their kids' education and how they deal with stress and the pressure to succeed. But these parents need to work with a team they trust won't just pile on more pressure to achieve better grades and scores. This is why I started Prep Matters in 1997, to create a different kind of experience for test preparation, tutoring, and college admissions planning. This podcast and my books reflect our company's philosophy and approach to helping students. If you have a high school student and would like to talk about putting in place a plan, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at prepmatters.com or call 301-951-0350. That's 301-951-0350. Thanks. Thanks.